So Isaiah chapter 11, uh, I'm going to do some talking for a little bit here, and then we'll finally get into uh, the chapter. We'll read the chapter, and we'll do verse 1 tonight, okay? Yeah, we'll do verse 1. So it's a huge messianic chapter, and uh, we'll exposit the whole chapter later. But I wanted to, um, as you can see, the rod, the branch, the root of Jesse. I want to talk about all of that tonight and how it's linked to multiple other prophecies throughout uh, Scripture. And uh, so we'll talk about that. Now, real quick, we, we jumped, we leaped right over chapter 10. Uh, and chapter 10 records uh, the prophecy uh, about God's judgment of Assyria. Of course, uh, future judgment, future to Isaiah, but past for us, we look back to it. Um, and what had happened was Assyria in, you know, being called of God as his instrument of justice was to accomplish uh, a particular mission, but Assyria became arrogant. And, uh, and instead of just taking out um, Damascus and Samaria, uh, they decided that they would also uh, try to take Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was not a part of the plan. And so because of them going beyond what God had called them for, uh, he pronounced judgment upon them. And the Assyrians were later defeated, just as God said, in 612 B.C. by the Babylonians and by the Medes. And the judgment upon them was so thorough that Assyria never rose to any kind of anything following that. Uh, in fact, uh, Nineveh was so decimated as a city that uh, it's difficult to even excavate the thing. Um, but what is interesting is the Assyrian people as an ethnic group still exist today. In fact, Alan Schliemann, who is coming to speak at our church, he is Assyrian. Yeah, but he's harmless. He's not, nothing like these people back then. So... All right, so concerning our discussion today, uh, all this stuff concerning Messiah that we've been getting into, and we're just now in chapter 11 of Isaiah, and as you know, there's a, there's a lot of chapters in Isaiah. Was there 62 chapters? Is that true? 66 chapters, like, like the Bible. That's right, 66 books. Um, now, beginning in chapter 2 of Isaiah, we started tracing this thread, this messianic uh, thread prophetically, uh, not only uh, to a kingdom, but also a king. Uh, we know that the kingdom, at least its, its headquarters, involves Judah and Jerusalem. Uh, that's made clear in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. And that also by the conquest of this Judean kingdom, the common practice of war and all of the instruments of war uh, will cease, and all the people groups, as the text says, of the earth will be drawn to Jerusalem to the worship of the God of Jacob, where they will also be taught the ways of the Lord by the Lord himself. But we're not introduced to the king of this Judean kingdom until we get to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 through 16, where we discover that this king will be conceived and born of a virgin in poverty. But when we get to chapter 9, verse 6, 
we learn that this male child born in poverty will rise to power and establish a kingdom that will never, ever come to an end. And then in keeping with Isaiah 2, this king will come, of course, from the lineage of King David, just as God promised David in 2 Samuel 7. And this king will sit on David's throne, and he'll rule over what was David's kingdom forever and ever. And that same prophecy was actually referenced by the angel Gabriel in Luke 1, 31 through 33, Speaking to Mary, he says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb, bring forth a son, shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom, and of his kingdom, there will be no end. So the king, of course, who fulfills all of this is Jesus. And this brings up a good point. If Jesus had not been who he said he was, some of his claims would have been the most arrogant and presumptuous statements ever. If he was not who he said that he was. You know, many of his claims come to mind, but there's one in particular that is fitting uh, for what our study is on. In Matthew 5, just after Jesus was finished talking about what we call the edicts of the kingdom, the Beatitudes, in his Sermon on the Mount, he said, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. Now imagine if he was not the Son of God and the man of prophecy. <laughs> you, you've, you've come to do what? The law of Moses. And all of his prophets. Imagine how arrogant and presumptuous he would be if he was not who he said he was. But Jesus did come to fulfill both the law of Moses and the prophets. All that they said concerning him. In regard to the first, he came to meet all the demands of the law. First, by obeying its commands perfectly. And second, by making an atonement for sins, both of which he did all of which are required by the law. And then in addition to this, Jesus came to fulfill all that the prophets had said about him. And as we'll look at tonight, as we'll just scratch the surface, the prophets were full of Jesus. Just so many prophecies about him. Many of those prophecies, of course, he's only partially fulfilled. We know that every prophecy concerning his first coming has been fulfilled literally and to the T. But those prophecies concerning his second coming are yet to be fulfilled, at least in the way that they're described in the Bible. The issue before us now is the issue of the kingdom, which follows his second coming. Okay? At his first coming, we know he came as a light to those who walked in darkness. We studied that in Isaiah 9. And a light that was then passed on to his people who were to shine that throughout the world. And since then, by his spirit, he's been accumulating subjects for this future kingdom. And now that brings us to Isaiah 11, which leads us into an interesting study of the Messiah's identity 
and origins. So that's what we'll look at tonight. So I would like to read the whole chapter to you. Uh, it's, it's not extremely long, but some of you might want to remain seated. I won't judge you if you stay seated, but if you'd like to stand as, as I am, you may do that. Listen carefully to the language. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my, mount, my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the earth. And in that day, there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner to the people. For the Gentiles shall seek him and his resting place shall be glorious. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left from Assyria and Egypt, from Pathros and Cush, from Elam and Shinar, from Hamath and the islands of the sea. He will set up a banner for the nations and will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Also, the envy of Ephraim shall depart and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. These sibling rivalries. But they shall fly down upon the shoulder of the Philistines toward the west. Together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall lay their hand on Edom and Moab, and the people of Ammon shall obey them. The Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt. With his mighty wind, he will shake his fist over the river and strike it in the seven streams and make men cross over dry shod. There will be a highway for the remnant of his people who will be left from Assyria as it was for Israel in the day that he came up from the land of Egypt. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you that as this whole chapter is just filled with prophetic promises. And Lord, if these things are just partially, literally true, we have much to look forward to in regard to the, the state of the creation, the, the nature of your rule. Lord, so many things. I just pray that you would encourage our hearts with this. And uh, Lord, that you would put hope 
in our hearts as we look forward to the things that you have written and promised us, Lord. So, Lord, we thank you, and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. All right, well, look back and look at Isaiah 11, verse 1, excuse me. And then I'm going to include verse 10 in there. So verse 1 says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Verse 1. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse. Verse 10. Now, we know that Jesse was the father of King David. Now, this is all, this language is very interesting. Uh, This person is referred to as both the rod in verse 1 and and the root in verse 10 of Jesse. This person is both the product and origin of Jesse. You follow? Of course, a branch comes from the trunk, right? And the trunk comes from the root. It says that this person is the stem, but he's also the root of Jesse. It's very interesting language, but how is this possible? How can this be true simultaneously? Well, this is, there's another passage that is very similar to the way that these two are combined. It's in Revelation. It says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David. Well, that doesn't clear anything up, really. Uh, we're still wondering how in the world is that possible, okay? So here it's not talking about Jesse, but Jesse's son, David. He is the root and the offspring of David, okay? How does one precede and follow his progenitor. There's a number of other references like this in the Bible, many more. Let's look at a few more. When John the Baptist was speaking to his disciples about Jesus, he said this, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. You guys, John was six months older than Jesus. So how did Jesus come before him? Yeah, here's another. In Matthew 22, 41, when speaking to the Pharisees, Jesus said, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. Jesus said to them, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. In the psalm, David presents three persons in, in a, like a chain of command. There's the Lord, who is Yahweh, uh, a proper name. And the Lord said to David's Lord, who is Adon, that's a title. And then David refers to himself as my. Okay, So Yahweh said to my Adon, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So the Lord says to the one who is Lord over David, to that Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. Now what's interesting is the first century rabbis to whom Jesus was speaking 
believed that the Lord of David is the Messiah. And the Lord of Messiah is Jehovah. But these rabbis also believed, as the text says, that the Messiah would be the son of David. If that is true, why then is David referring to his son as Lord? This is very backwards. No father, especially in that culture, would refer to his own son as Lord unless something very unusual was going on. And there was. So what's going on? Paul shed some light on this in Romans 1, 1 through 4, saying, Paul, the bondservant of Jesus Christ, called an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Jesus is the son of two fathers, right? He's the son of David. Now, of course, in that culture, you say that your great-great-great-great-great-grandson is your son and your great-great-great-great-grandfather is your father, right? So he's the son of David, his human fleshly father. He's also the son of God, his divine father who is pure spirit, John chapter 4. So the question is, who is his father first? Who is his father first? Now, Jesus told us in his prayer in John 17, he said, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Before the world was. So Jesus was anticipating that he would be returning to his father, and that he would be restored to the glory he possessed with his father before the world was created. Okay? His sonship to the father is an eternal sonship, right? He has always been the eternally begotten of the father. Begotten, not born, as the ancient fathers of the church would say. Okay? Consider the, the beginning of John's gospel. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him, nothing was made that was made. And then verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Now, notice carefully, real quick, verse 1 says, the Word was with God, and then it also says the Word was God. The, the Word was with God in eternal relationship with the Trinity, okay? Now, this being with speaks of his individual personhood of the Word. He's a distinct person who can be with, okay? But John also says that the Word was God. Now, that's a reference to his eternal substance as God. He's only distinct in his personhood, but not in his essence. Also, all things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. This implies that the word 
was not made. Right? Okay. He's eternal. Colossians 1.16, we've been referring to this in verse 17, says that Jesus created all things and that he is before all things. Well, if Jesus is before all things, he's eternal. But if he's before all things, does it mean he existed before his Father? Certainly not his heavenly Father, right? Okay. Well, no, one does not come before the other because they're both of the same substance. This is why all three persons can be referred to as God Almighty. Uh, We know that there can only be one Almighty, but because they're all of the same substance, they can all be the Almighty. Amen? One did not come before the other. God has always existed from all eternity as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons, one divine substance. One more verse regarding Jesus' eternality. Micah 5.2 But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. An eternal child, or not a child, an eternal person will be born in time. I have no idea how that happens. Okay. We, we often think of like, you know, miracles at different degrees. Like the creation of the universe, um, you know, the healing of the blind, the lame. Nothing, nothing compares to the incarnation. It is the wildest miracle that God has ever performed. That the eternal God would come in the flesh and then exist somehow in time. It's just, it's just so beyond. I have no idea. It's just, it's something. He created time. And then he stepped into it. Yeah. So this son, as we've been studying, upon whose shoulders will rest eternal government. He's to be conceived of a virgin in the city of Bethlehem in a person who has existed for all eternity. He has no beginning. So back to our original question, how could this person both follow and precede his progenitor? How could he be the root and the offspring of David and Jesse, for that matter? Okay. So according to this child's deity, He's from eternity, okay, preceding Jesse, preceding David as their creator and Lord. But according to the child's flesh, he was brought forth in time, taking on human flesh in the virgin's womb. So the eternal word, as John says, took on flesh to dwell among us, to take our sins from us that he might redeem us. So Jesus is both the progenitor and the offspring of Jesse and David. Only God can pull something like that off, right? According to his deity, he is the progenitor of all. According to his humanity, he is the son of David. Now Isaiah, back to our text, he's the very first one to mention Messiah as the rod the branch and the root. 
Now, he's mentioned in some obscurity that way in Isaiah 4, verse 2, but here it's with great clarity, chapter 11. But it's just the beginning. The branch becomes this major theme among the prophets. It just begins here. Jeremiah 23, 5, similarly, verse 15, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness, a king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. So here, the branch is specifically referred to as a king. And what this king will do is he will execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. Now imagine anyone coming upon the scene in a global context, what would it require for them to execute judgment and righteousness on planet Earth? Everybody will just welcome him and thank him for coming. You know, we live in this time right now where good is being called evil and evil is being called good. Okay, you and I do it as well, by the way. Um, we're masters at it. When we do something wrong, we make excuses. And when we do that, we're calling our evil good. Chew on that for a while. Yeah. But for someone to come on the scene currently and try to exercise a single morality, there's only one thing that that would cause. War. That's it. Also, in line with this whole discussion about the branch, just before the Lord went silent for 400 years during what we call the intertestamental period. Now, when we say silent, it's not that he wasn't, you know, any kind of interaction with people of faith, but there was no writing. There was no prophet. So God, in that sense, went silent for 400 years from Malachi to Matthew he revealed to this to Zechariah. He says, Hear, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you, for they are a wondrous sign. For behold, I am bringing forth my servant, the branch. And again, then speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold, the man whose name is the branch. From his place he shall branch out, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory and shall sit and rule on his throne. So he shall be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace shall be between them both. Now he just added a whole ton to the theology of the branch. You see, the branch is not only a king who sits on the throne of David, he will be a priest who sits on the throne. So the branch, the son of David, will fill both offices, king and priest. Now, that brings up a serious question. How can that be? Well, I think God can solve it. He solved the, the progenitor and offspring thing, so how does he solve this one? But the question is, you know, how can this be? Only the sons of Levi, through the lineage of Aaron, can be priests in the temple, right? 
Nobody else. They had to be a son of Aaron to serve as a priest. And they had to be a Levite to serve in the temple. Of course, the sacrifices were off limits. Uh, They were the ones that kept the temple clean, and they served the priests themselves. Well, in our text, this is not that temple, and this is not the same priestly order. This is a different temple, and the one who serves in it is not from the order of Aaron, but from the order of who? Melchizedek. That's right. Jesus, as we know, is a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Okay? Now, it's most interesting that, you know, Jesus' argument for being David's Lord, though he is David's son, comes from Psalm 110. That's where it comes from. But so does God's declaration that Jesus is a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. It's Psalm 110, verse 4. Where David says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That's Psalm 110.1. But then just a few verses later, God declares that he, the Messiah, David's Lord, is a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And then we read all about that in uh, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. Now, Melchizedek, it's interesting, was both the righteous king of Salem... That's the city of peace. That's actually the ancient name for the city of Jerusalem. And he's the priest of Most High God. He's king and he's priest. Jesus will follow in this manner. Or, as some believe, he'll just pick up doing what he was doing before because some theologians believe that Melchizedek is a pre-incarnate or some kind of strange uh, Christophany if you will, of Christ. Um, I lean that way, but I'm not, I'm not dogmatic with it. How many of you guys think that Melchizedek is Christ? Wow. How many don't know? How many think that he's not? So there's four of you that think he is. You'll ask him. Yeah, okay. Yeah. It is really interesting. That whole thing. It was also revealed to Zechariah that the branch, who was Jesus, would build the temple of the Lord. All right? It's also interesting. Amos 9.11 adds that Jesus will raise up the tabernacle of David. It will repair its damages and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. As in the days of old. Now, some people think that this is all poetry or it should be taken non literally, but when it uses language like as in the days of old, you know what I think? It's, it's going to be as in the days of old. When the Messiah returns, he will erect this particular temple, he will rebuild. As in the days of old, the kingdom of David, and he will sit on the throne of David. That's what I believe. And to be honest with you, I can't wait for all of that. Okay? It's a hope that is embedded deep in my heart. And uh, as Paul says, uh, no one hopes for what they have. They hope for what they don't have. 
What I have is a promise. And what I'm waiting for is the reality of that promise to materialize here on planet Earth. Okay, yeah. So, question, how many prophecies did we just cover that have to do with Jesus' second coming and his kingdom? Did you guys record them all? I didn't either. But I'm familiar with probably 20 times that. Tons of them are in Isaiah. And those are just all the ones that, you know, link the, the rod and the, um, the stem and the root together. It's fascinating. Connecting all these prophecies and they're, you know, you can stretch them into many other ones throughout the Old Testament. Um, the, the fact is, we've just covered a few that Jesus will fulfill because he says, I did not come to destroy the law and the prophets, but to fulfill. He's going to go into, he's going to fulfill many, many more. Many more. All according to his Father's timing. After the resurrection, uh, we know that Jesus spent 40 days with his disciples. And do you remember what the, the, their discussion was all about? What's that? I can't hear you. Okay, don't say it too loud then. We don't, we don't want anybody to be wrong. Yeah. Okay, that was before the resurrection, before his death. Yeah. That was the sons of thunder that came, and yeah. So it happened just wrong time. Does anybody remember? 40 days. I mean, imagine the risen Christ, your faith is now not in the hope of Messiah, but it's all of the promises, all of the, the things, the claims of Jesus. It's all true. Uh, all of their doubts have been annihilated. Close. They asked him, they were, ta- they were talking about things that were pertaining to when he returned. It says they spoke of things pertaining to the kingdom, the kingdom of God. Yeah. So at the end of those 40 days, just before he ascended into heaven, it says this. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? What did they not talk about for those 40 days? Timing. Timing. They talked about the kingdom of God, but they did not talk about when, to which the Lord responded, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. Dang it. (laughs) Jesus is saying the timing of the kingdom is not your concern, though many people, of course, throughout history have tried to uh, pin it down in the scriptures, uh, what do they all have in common? They've been wrong. Jesus is, uh, what he has said here has not changed, okay? But the Father has placed the timing of all of this in his own authority for his own purposes. It was his divine prerogative to appoint the time. It's his divine prerogative to keep it to himself. He has appointed his king, Psalm 2. 
I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. And he's appointed the inauguration of the kingdom. And as Jesus says, our concern is not the timing of the kingdom, but it's the commission of the king. It's the commission. Jesus says after this, he says, but it's not for you to know times and seasons, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and then Samaria and then to the utter ends of the earth. And that's exactly uh, according to that outline that it's been happening. So we are not privy to the timing of the kingdom, but we have been commissioned to labor for souls until his kingdom comes. Okay. Do you know how much that bothers me? What do you think the benefits are of us not knowing the timing of the kingdom? Okay, you have to live for Jesus today. If you knew the time, do you think you might, you would procrastinate? Speak for yourself. That's right. That's right. Isn't there even parables about procrastinating? The servants not knowing the, the, the arrival, and they procrastinated. Yeah. And so Jesus is, therefore, you should be watchful. Okay. And he says, for if you knew the time that a thief would come, right, you would be up and ready with your club. That's right. Shotgun these days. Right. Right. What, it, what would be another benefit of having the promise of the kingdom but not knowing the time? Spread the gospel. I think that that is implied in all of this, is that if we knew the date, uh, we might just hold off. But not knowing, it, it, it has the sense of keeping us on our toes. Uh, we talk about you know, imminence, the, the suddenness of it all. And uh, if we believe that the, the Lord could return for his people at any moment, we might be more apt to stay busy, stay on our toes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, when we return to the text, I'll give a detailed exposition of chapter 11. And most of it uh, is referring to what I believe is the millennial kingdom, is all that unravels on planet Earth once Jesus returns. And, of course, it begins with, with war. Thus, as a bumper sticker that was on cars years ago said, Jesus is coming back and he's real mad. Okay? Uh, he comes back with a big sword. Uh, a, the Thracian Ramphia is probably what the text is referring to. The Ramphia is about six feet long. Uh, it's not the, I believe it's the, is it the Macarius? The Macarius. It's a, Short sword. No, Jesus doesn't play with short swords. He plays with the Ramphia, which is a huge um, battle sword for crushing armor and breaking ranks. And um, he'll return and he'll execute wrath and then he will inaugurate and organize his kingdom. And um, that's the discussion we'll get into next time. But to be fair, I won't be here next Thursday. I have a wedding to do in the Yak in Montana. 
So pray for me. It's going to be tough being in the mountains of Montana. Uh, but uh, Micah Rose, where did he go? There he is. Micah Rose led worship tonight. Uh, he's going to be teaching next Thursday. And uh, we'll find out what you're going to talk about. So I'm excited. Yeah. So anyway, I couldn't help myself tonight just looking at all of the prophecies linked to the rod, the stem, and the root, and how they not just tied together, but how they, uh, they just are fulfilled in Christ. So Jesus indeed will fulfill the prophets. It's just a matter of time. Amen? All right, I'm going to let you out early. Please continue to read ahead and uh, cross-reference and look at all of the passages referring to that time. We've already done some. That's Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, referring to that same era. Let's go ahead and pray. Stand up if you will. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that in your wisdom, Lord, your sovereignty, you've organized and orchestrated all of these things. Lord, you've revealed them to us except for the time. All that you you intend to uh, make happen here with us. And Lord, I pray that as Jesus said, we're not to worry about the timing, but we're to worry about the commission. Lord, nothing can stop the appointed time of your return, of your judgment, and all of those things. And so, Lord, it is for us to not only be prepared ourselves to stand before you, but, but Lord, to help others prepare. And, and not just within the fellowship of our church, but in preaching the gospel to the lost. So, Lord, help us to, to feel their plight, knowing that we were once in their shoes, and that, as Paul said, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Help us, Lord, to be concerned with what you said that we should be concerned about. So, Lord, thank you. And, Lord, I pray for uh, uh, Micah now that uh, you would lead his thoughts, his mind through your word into um, a text that he can teach and encourage the body with. So just bless his studies, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.